everything's wrong. Days are too long. Sunshine's too hot. Wind is too strong. Clouds are too fluffy. Grass is too green. Ground is too dusty. Sheets are too clean. Stars are too twinkly. Moon is too high. Water's too drippy. Sand is too dry. Rocks are too heavy. Feathers too light. Kids are too noisy. Shoes are too tight. Folks are too happy singing their songs. Why can't they see it? Everything's wrong. Their city, Jerusalem, the perfection of beauty and joy of all the earth, where all that glittered was gold, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold has changed. The sacred stones lie scattered at the head of every street. At least Jerusalem being reduced to rubble meant an end to the, the siege of starvation. Thirty months of peering over the walls only to see the Babylonian military might cutting off their food supply, literally starving the city to death. The tongue of the infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives them anything because there's nothing to give. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food in the destruction of my people. And when King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire broke through the walls of Jerusalem, King Zedekiah of Judah, the king you would expect to fight and stand up and die for his people, the king, with all the soldiers, fled. By night, by way of the gate, between the two walls by the king's garden. Then they headed toward the Jordan Valley. But the army of the Chaldeans, that is the, the Babylonians, pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered, deserting him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, who passed sentence on him. And there on the dusty plains, they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. The last sight for his eyes to see, for they then put out the eyes of Zedekiah. They bound him in fetters and took him to Babylon, and maybe you know the story. With the king in agony, as a prisoner, his heirs slaughtered before his eyes, the army scattered, Jerusalem was plundered, the temple of Solomon destroyed, and the city was burned to the ground. Then the people were uprooted from their homes, and livelihoods and histories, forced to walk for miles and miles far from home, enslaved in a strange and foreign land, exiled in what the history books would later call the Babylonian captivity. This is trauma. Oh, it's not just that clouds are too fluffy, grass is too green, ground is too dusty, sheets are too clean. No, just close your eyes for a second. And listen to the wailing women mourning their losses. The laughing of Babylonian soldiers as they pillage the homes and the daughters of the conquered. Can you smell the burning of the city? Taste the dust on your tongue, your throat parched and raw as your blistered feet walk yet another mile further from your home and livelihood and history. 
And now you don't have to have your eyes gouged out and your city burned to the ground and starvation set in to understand what all of this feels like, the complete loss or absence of hope. In fact, you might be experiencing the complete loss or absence of hope right now in the rubble of your well-intentioned plans and hopes and dreams or in the struggle of trying to stay afloat when it feels like every moment is another hardship trying to pull you under or in the abandonment uh, by friends that you thought were friends or family that sure just doesn't act like family or in the agony of bad news dumped on your doorstep. If you're not there now, I bet you've been there before. And some people will tell you, well, that, that's just being human. It goes with the territory. Despair is a part of life. And maybe that is true. But that sucks, and nobody wants to hear that. But what do you do in the agony of the complete loss or absence of hope? Like Perhaps you get sad. There's a, a psalm for that. Or perhaps you get bitter. There's a psalm for that too. Perhaps you get hopeless. There's a psalm for that. Perhaps you get mad. There's even a psalm for that too. But we often don't know what to do with these psalms, especially these angry ones, these fiery prayers offered to God. Sure, the psalms, they teach us to pray. They, they, they teach us that profound change always happens in the presence of God and that people who pray are people living in hope. But how do you pray when you have none? When you have no hope? When all you have is rage? What do you do when you're angry? Like I said, there's a psalm for that. And today, as we continue with the psalms of summer, we're exploring the, the words and hopes and dreams and truths and promises about God and us and all that it means for our world. There are 150 of them in the Bible, 150 psalms. And I think the psalms, these poems and these prayers, these songs offered to God are for every season. Even when everything's wrong, days are too long, sunshine's too hot, wind is too strong. Even when it feels like the struggle seems to take years off our lives and has us leaving holes in the drywall, there's a psalm for that too. And today, that's what we're exploring. One of the many psalms of anger. These psalms are, are calling for payback, for vengeance, asking God to do, as we will see, the unthinkable. But all of this is spoken in the language of prayer to God. Because after all, the Psalms teach us that profound change always happens in the presence of God and people who pray are a people living in hope. But this Psalm today that we're going to explore, it sounds hopeless. I mean, it's so explicit, I'm not even sure how it made it in. The anger and rage is so felt, you can almost see the spit flying from the lips of the author. We'll call them the psalmist. It comes from a place of pain, and it lashes out in bitter anger, but it does so all in the context of prayer. 
And as we look at Psalm 137, we're going to see what's called a classic cursing psalm. Wait, what? Cursing? I, I, the psalms were, 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 were teaching us that profound change always happens in the presence of God and the people who pray are people living in hope. But really, like, yeah, with cursing psalms, how is that even possible? Well, cursing psalms are a method for bringing out anger in an honest and appropriate way before God. It's real, raw, honest prayer. And by praying through the fiery words of the psalmist, our complaints and our frustrations are guided back to confidence in God. And these are actually, uh, these are healthy and restorative acts, not only for the individual, but for the community as well, as, as well if they are used responsibly. So let's get to it. Psalm 137. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. Psalm 137, verse 1 begins. Beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept. As we thought of Jerusalem, we put away our harps, hanging them on the branches of poplar trees. For our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on joyful hymns. Sing us one of the songs of Jerusalem. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget how to play the harp. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I fail to remember you, if I don't make Jerusalem my greatest joy. Okay, it sounds like pretty tame up to this point. Oh Lord, remember what the Edomites did on the day the armies of Babylon captured Jerusalem. Destroy it! They yelled, level it to the ground! Oh Babylon, you will be destroyed. Happy is the one who pays you back for what you have done to us. Happy is the one who takes your babies and smashes them against the rocks. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. I mean, I've been mad before, but I don't think that mad. I mean, fortunately, it's good to know that the Bible is chock full of people more messed up than you and me. That gives me a little hope, realizing, you know, I'm not alone in my screw-ups or in my anger, but I mean, this, this is anger on another level. Like, it sets the bar really high. But it might not be so foreign as we might think. Maybe it will help us deal with the whole spectrum of emotions involved with, what do you do when you're angry? So let's break it down verse by verse. Psalm 137 verse 1 says, Beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept as we thought of Jerusalem. So between the years 586 to 539, the people of Israel are in exile in Babylon, present-day Iraq. They're captured, conquered, far from home with the memories of their destroyed city, their burned-down temple, and slain family members fresh in their minds. And to make matters worse, everything is different, even the landscape. It's like stars are too twinkly, moon is too high, water's too drippy, sand is too dry. And here they sit, by the rivers and the canals of Babylon, a, a different climate than the modern-day Iraq we're so used to seeing, so different also than the dry terrain of Judah and Jerusalem, and like floodwaters, the pain of remembering home comes rushing in. Verse 2 says, We put away our harps, hanging them on the branches of poplar trees, like they're done with singing. It's not the time 
or the place. For our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn. Sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? It's like folks are too happy singing their songs. Why can't they see it? Everything's wrong. They're done with singing. It's not the time or the place. The exiles could not bring themselves to sing the songs about home even when their captors demanded songs sarcastic and mocking. Sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem. The memory would be too heartbreaking. They couldn't sing. So they hung their harps on the tree. It's like one of those stages of grief, I don't know, shock or depression, where it's like you're paralyzed. You can't, you can't do anything. Can't eat, can't sleep, can't move, can't, can't get up. I mean, you're so disoriented by the situation that you can't do anything. And for the exiles enduring this tremendous hardship, there's nothing to do but weep. Singing seems out of the question for where they're at and what's going on. They grieve their current condition, and we hear the intensity of their pain increasing with each line of the psalm. The exiles, they've been ripped from their homeland, ripped from their livelihoods, from everything. It's too painful to remember Judah and Jerusalem. It's too painful to remember home. But if I forget you, O Jerusalem, like if I forget home, the promised land, the place of the covenants, and all the, the great festivals and memories, if I forget it, let my right hand forget how to play the harp. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I fail to remember you. If I don't make Jerusalem my greatest joy. And for the exiles, if Jerusalem and all that it represents, God, his history with them as a people, and his unfailing provision, if it's not remembered, then music and song will become impossible forever. The paralyzed tongue won't be able to sing. The withered hand won't be able to strum. As painful as it is for the people to remember Jerusalem, it would be more painful not to remember. For these memories offer hope and life during the pain of exile. Just ask a mother who's lost her daughter how much more painful it would be not to remember. Just ask a husband who's lost his wife, how painful would it be not to remember? For the exiles, remembering home means trust and faithfulness to God's place and God's ongoing purposes. It's actually an act of resistance. It's an act of resistance in a foreign land. They could not sing, but they could and must remember. Because to remember is also to resist the same thing happening again. So when we erase history, we set ourselves up for the same thing to happen again. In February, we visited the Yad Vashem in Israel, in Jerusalem. And it's this museum and a memorial that is dedicated to the memory and the name of those who were murdered by the Nazis during the Holocaust. The name Yad Vashem, it means precisely that, a memorial and a name. And it's taken from Isaiah 56, 5. To them I will give in my house and within my walls Yad Vashem, a memorial 
and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off from memory. And off to the side of the main museum, there's a special memorial, and you have to go underground in this cavern. And it's all dark in there, except it's illuminated by, I think, five candles shining off of the mirrored walls. And incessantly, all day long, you hear the recorded voices of a of man and a woman, and they are reciting the names of 1.5 million children. And it sounds like a, like a father calling after their lost daughter, mother calling after their lost son. It's in Hebrew and Yiddish and English. Miriam Eisenberg, three years old, Poland. Josef Edelstein, five years old, Moldova. Zuza Cohen, nine years old, Slovakia. It was like suffocating this experience, and it was suffocating this remembering. But to remember is also to resist the same thing happening again. To remember is to live and to be faithful to God's purpose of life for all people. And it's actually at the heart of our faith. As Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Well, do what? Gather together at the table in peace, sharing the bread and the wine, which represents his body and his blood that were broken and shed on our behalf. Remembering Jesus' sacrifice is painful. But we remember in doing that, there is hope because of the resurrection. And, and perhaps in our, our trauma and in our pain, remembering can actually be something grounding and stabilizing as we go through it. Like, I, I can get through this. Whatever the situation might be, I can get through this because I remember when God got me through that. For the exiles in Psalm 137, as painful as it is for them to remember Jerusalem, it would be more painful not to remember. For remembering means hope and life and resistance during the pain of exile. So we've touched on the emotional experience of the exiles. Sorrow, grief, loss, a touch of frustration. But as we're about to see the anger just explode, let's first define anger. I learned uh, so much from Dr. Ken Riedel a few weeks ago when he spoke to the men about anger. And I had plenty of time and space to apply that learning when my wife took off on a missions trip to Costa Rica of all places and left me with a brood of vipers. It actually was a mission strip, I'm told. No hot showers, a chain link fence for a bed, and tons of outreach in poor towns and crime-ridden villages. But back to me. I learned and I fully experienced how anger is an intense emotion you feel when something has gone wrong or someone has wronged you. And it starts with irritation, like rocks are too heavy, feathers too light, kids are too noisy, shoes are too tight. But anger, according to Dr. Ken, it's, it's like a staircase. Irritation, frustration, anger. 
rage, aggression. And as we move forward with Psalm 137, I think we see just that, the psalmist defining their anger. They put a a name to the face and a face to the name of their anger. And as shocking as it gets, we must remember how the psalmist is bringing their anger out in an honest and appropriate way before God, realizing that God, being God, can take this anger. God can take it and guide it back to restoration and confidence in him. Now, the same is not true of your spouse or your dad or your mom or your brood of vipers ages one, three, and five. But God can. God can handle it. Oh Lord, verse 7 says, remember what the Edomites did on the day the armies of Babylon captured Jerusalem. Destroy it! They yelled, level it to the ground! So the psalmist talks about Edom, Judah's neighbors to the southeast, asking God to remember. Like, God, don't forget how Edom stood by and watched Babylon destroy us. They even joined in and chased after the spoils of war. And then the psalmist lashes out against Babylon. Oh, Babylon, you will be destroyed. Happy or blessed is the one who pays you back for what you have done to us. Happy or blessed is the one who takes your babies and smashes them against the rocks. Woo! This is almost certainly the most brutal of many requests for God to deal with enemies. It's a scalding beatitude. You know, like in, in the New Testament, when Jesus, he gives his sermon on the mount, it begins with the beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But here it's a scalding beatitude. Blessed is the one who pays you back for what you have done to us. Blessed is the one who takes your babies and smashes them against the rocks. And it's hard, I think, to make sense of this request unless you've seen your children trampled by invading horses or run through by a Babylonian spear. The renowned Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann writes, perhaps this psalm, Psalm 137, will be understood and valued among us only if we experience some concrete brutalization. Psalmist cries out for their enemies to feel what they have felt, to experience what they have experienced, to have their babies representing their generations, their futures put to an end. But note this the psalmist does not take action. The psalmist does not, in fact, smash the skulls of babies against rocks. It is a prayer a wish, a hope, a yearning, all spoken in the language of prayer to God. The venom is left in God's hands, turned over, released, as it were. And Brueggemann also writes, it is an act of profound faith, an act of profound faith to entrust one's most precious hatreds 
to God, knowing they will be taken seriously. And this might actually be freeing and unburdening to go to God with our most bottomless rage and fear. It might actually be hope to be brutally honest about my pain and hand it over to the judge of all things, saying, I have trust and confident expectation that God will do what God needs to do. Like this cursing psalm is important because it instructs us to bring our anger to prayer. Not to Facebook, not to gossip, not to hand-to-hand combat, not to domestic violence and verbal abuse, not to destructive behavior, but to God. By praying through the fiery words of the psalmist, our complaints and frustrations are guided back to confidence in God. And through this prayer, the psalmist demands that their enemies be driven into the hands of God. But who can say what will happen to them there? That's up to God. This is real, raw, honest prayer, a way of bringing out our anger in a way that is honest and appropriate before God. It's way more than just venting. It's, I've reached my boiling point with this, and here's the real, raw, honest truth. That only you, God, can handle. And only you, God, can transform this eventually into something good. Now you may say, well, I'm, I'm not an angry person. I'm not an angry person. Well, why are you yelling? <laughs> Listen, Linda. Calm down. Relax. Take a chill pill. Any of those phrases just pours gas on the fire. (laughs) How about now? Angry yet? Let's be honest. We all get angry. We all get upset. If not, go hang out at DMV. Go to Chuck E. Cheese. Assemble something from Ikea. Call Verizon just for fun to stay online on the hold, you know. Then you'll see. Or better yet, take three kids to the beach, alone, all by yourself. Do make sure that it takes three hours to get out the door. Do everything in your power to incite their rebellion. Make sure that the beach has a steep drop-off, very rocky, strong undertow, so that you can never blink, let alone relax. Encourage them to run at full speed into the crashing waves. Have them throw rocks innocent bystanders are gathered. And then after 15 minutes of fun, ensure that they enforce every amount of will not to be strapped into their car seats. Then promise them ice cream because, you know, sugar will do the trick. Do make sure that you're almost out of gas and you can't find your wallet. Drive home, search for it, Leave the kids in the car, windows down if you really love them. Scour the house three times over. Search the car four times. Don't let the kids out. Get them real cranky. Have them yell in the car so the neighbors start calling 911 or at least CPS. Drive back to the beach because you can't find your wallet in the house. Maybe you dropped it in the sand, but you know that you didn't do that. Just ask your five-year-old with the photographic memory. Hey, Zeke. 
do you know where my wallet is? Uh, yeah, I think it's on the back deck. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. You know, we all get angry. We all get upset. It's life, right? And some of these, these petty things, they stir up in us this emotion when we feel that something's gone wrong or someone has wronged us. The Psalms teach us to go to God with it, to pray. I'd say to pray first. <laughs> but you know, then there are some things in our world that we most certainly should be angry about. Sin, injustice, slavery, being ripped from your home, your livelihood, your history, to walk for miles and miles enslaved in a strange and foreign land. I think that's okay to be angry about. The Psalms teach us to go to God with it, to pray. Because after all, simply just denying the emotion and burying it is not dealing with it. You might actually be in more trouble if you feel nothing. The worst possible response to monstrous evil in our world is to feel nothing. We must feel what must be felt by the victims and on their behalf is grief and anger and outrage. In the absence of these feelings, evil becomes acceptable. So it's vital not to bury or ignore or deny what is going on inside or around us and in all things go to God. And as shocking and brutal as it is, as real and raw and honest as it is, I think Psalm 137 teaches us that profound change always happens in the presence of God at our highest highs and our lowest lows. And people who pray, especially in their anger, are people learning to live in hope. So what do you do when you're angry? Well, I think we should pray Okay, uh, how? How do we do that? Well, let me show you with another cursing psalm. Psalm 109. Oh God, whom I praise, don't stand silent and aloof while Toby from HR slanders me and tells lies about me. Toby from HR and Gabe, the coordinating director, surround me with hateful words and fight against me for no reason. They repay evil for good and hatred for my love. I love them, but they try to destroy me with accusations as I'm praying for them. Toby and Gabe say about me, Get an evil person to turn against him. Send an accuser to bring him to trial. When his case comes up for judgment, let him be pronounced guilty. Like, what the heck? Toby and Gabe say, count my prayers as sins. Let my years be few. Let someone else take my position. May my children become fatherless and my wife a widow. May my children wander as beggars and be driven from their ruined homes. But God, I am asking you, may those curses become your punishment for Toby and Gabe who speak evil of me. But deal well with me, O sovereign Lord, for the sake of your own reputation. Rescue me because you are so faithful and good. And because of God's goodness, 
an ability to handle anything I bring him. Something profound happens in me as I voice my anger to God. Remember, this is all in the context of prayer. You say, well, Jesus said, you know, love your enemies. Yeah, yeah, we're getting to there. This is the process. There needs to be a way of releasing it, of letting it out, of being real and raw and honest with God. Not with Toby and Gabe, but first with God. And because of God's goodness and his ability to handle anything, something profound happens to me. I realize first how good God is, and then I begin to walk down that staircase from aggression to rage to anger to frustration, irritation, and then to something new, maybe a sense of peace, clarity, or even hope on the road to acceptance, recovery, and reconciliation. You know, I think as Christians, we, we just try to, you know, act like we don't get angry. We try to act like we've got it all together, at least for like an hour and a half on a Sunday. And we're really good at um, this thing that uh, the Greeks used to call, it, it's, there's a term for it. And it's someone who goes on stage like this they put something over their face, a mask. And the word in Greek is hypocrites, hypocrite. And how good we have become at doing this, to denying the emotions that God has put into our lives, right? Instead of learning how to deal with them and work through them. I think that we could do with a great dose of honesty in this place. Like there is, there is rage in our bones. There's unforgiveness in this place. There's frustration here, irritation. And you know what I, I keep coming back to is this reality that like Jesus was never repulsed by anybody never repulsed by anybody. But how often are we, because of the hangups that we have, the anger, the frustration, the unforgiveness, the guilt, the shame, all of these things that just have us trapped. I, I wonder if, if we were just to be honest, maybe first with God, and then we learn to be honest with one another in a way that is loving and upbuilding and caring, speaking the truth, but speaking it in love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, all of the things that we are called to do. You know, I, I know that Toby is like an evil snail who drones on and on about his famous jury duty case, and Gabe is a kiss-up who looks like a skeleton. But in voicing my anger to God, something drastic changes in me even if the external situation hasn't changed for the better, something happens inside of me. 
And here's the thing, neurologists and really smart people like Dr. Ken will tell you that every time you resist acting on your anger in destructive ways, you're actually rewiring your brain to be more calm and loving. Everything's wrong. Days are too long, sunshine's too hot, wind is too strong, clouds are too fluffy, grass is too green, ground is too dusty, sheets are too clean, stars are too twinkly, moon is too high, water's too drippy, sand is too dry, rocks are too heavy, feathers too light, kids are too noisy, shoes are too tight, folks are too happy, singing their songs, why can't they see it? Everything's wrong. So, talk to God about it. Lord, we come before you today and we just say thanks for hearing us at our highest highs and our lowest lows. We thank you, God, that you are full of steadfast love, that you are slow to anger. And we know that your anger is righteous anger. We know, God, that a lot of our anger is not righteous. And so I I pray, God, that there would just be a lifting today, an unburdening today, a release today from the weight and the baggage and the fear and the frustration, the rage that is in our bones. I pray that we would surrender today to you. Maybe it's in the form of just going out and just yelling out one of these cursing psalms in the car and guiding that back to confidence in you. Or maybe it means asking for forgiveness. We thank you, Jesus, for what you have done for us. Though we have been unfaithful, you remain faithful. Though we are angry and rotten, dirty sinners, Lord, you have called us sons and daughters of the Most High. And it's all because of what you did on the cross for us, that while we were still sinners, Jesus, you died for us. And so I pray if someone in here wants to experience that today, surrender their life saying, my life is a mess. But Jesus, you died for that mess. And you rose again. You defeated death and all my wrongdoing and all my sins. So come into my life and become my King, my Lord, my Savior. I put my full trust in you. Show me how to walk and live with you through every season, through every storm. In Jesus' name.